We're really thrilled to have Dr. John Roseman with us by phone. Dr. Roseman, welcome to WHO. Hi, Steve. It's just John, just plain old John. And John, where are you today? You're speaking somewhere, right? I'm in Frankfort, Indiana, just north of Indianapolis. I'll be giving a couple of talks here today and tomorrow. And this is kind of your life now, isn't it, where you, you write your columns, you write your books, and then you travel. I, uh, I write my columns and my books as I travel in hotels hmm. and airports and airplanes, and uh, thank God for laptop computers. That's right. <laughs> yeah. They can expect the same thing they've been getting out of my column for years, and that is practical, down-to-earth, and hopefully common-sense advice concerning the rearing of children and related family matters. Um, the talks that uh, I am giving now are much different than the talks that I was giving three or four years ago, the last time I was in Des Moines. Hmm. So uh, if, if anyone out there thinks they've heard me, you haven't, because the message is, is different. How has the message changed? Well, in all honesty, I think that, um, Steve, and I think this happens with uh, anyone in any profession over the years, uh, I've improved. My, my message has become, I think, more powerful, and the feedback is certainly to that effect. Hmm. Does it uh, make a difference that your kids are now grown up? I think it, yeah, I think it does. Um, my children are 27. Eric is a commercial pilot, married, a father. And uh, so, therefore, I'm a grandfather, you know. Oh. And, um, and, of course, therefore, I know everything now. <laughs> if I didn't know it before, I know it now. And uh, our daughter Amy is 24, and, and she's uh, working on her own. So, uh, yeah, I think that that does... Um, lend a, a more uh, a distanced perspective and therefore a, mm -hmm. a greater appreciation for the big picture. Yeah. What I notice is it's very cyclical. I, my oldest is now 13, and I, for a few years I kind of thought I had it. I thought I had everything covered, uh, no problem. And then, of course, you get toward the teenage years, and now everything starts to fall apart again. Uh, so, and I would kind of assume that's as they get older, then they're kind of okay again. And uh, there's a cycle to life, isn't there? Well, there is. There uh, there are actually two major crises in the parent-child relationship, one that occurs in late toddlerhood, we call it the terrible twos, and the other that occurs during early adolescence. And one of the talks that I'll be giving in Des Moines is on teens, and um, I'll be sharing with parents uh, the, the things that I discovered as, parent, as a parent of two teenagers uh, to help them negotiate that very mm -hmm. critical period in yeah. their relationship with their kids. Why don't you tell us about your background? How did you get involved in, in, in parenting and in writing the columns and the books? After graduate school, Steve, I uh, took a number of jobs in community mental health and at the same time was uh, participating in the rearing of two children. And I quickly learned that the party line, the in other words, the the messages that the psychological community was dispensing concerning the rearing of children were simply not helpful. They were, in my personal experience and increasingly so in my professional experience, counterproductive. And my wife and I, Willie and I, just finally, belatedly, realized that the way we had been reared ourselves, uh, the old-fashioned traditional way, was the only way, the best way. Hmm. And we... Uh, reclaimed that, brought it into our family life, and um, I began writing the newspaper column in 1976 and just sharing what I had discovered at a very personal level. The, the column, as people know, and my books are not written from an academic perspective or 
from an intellectual perspective. They're they're written from a very personal kind of first person perspective on this is what I've learned. John Roseman mm-hmm. being a parent, and um, the column has simply grown since then, and and the public speaking has grown, and I'm having a great time, especially now that Willie can travel with me more. So when you're called old fashioned, do you consider that a compliment? Oh, I consider it a compliment. Yeah, I. I think that sometimes people use the term pejoratively when they are referring to me in that fashion, but uh, I feel that there's nothing new under the sun concerning children, their upbringing, or their education. And the biggest mistake that we as a culture have made, and I think it is the biggest mistake we have made, is um, in the last 40 years, is letting ourselves become persuaded by well-intentioned mental health professionals like myself, that there was a new way to rear children that was better mm-hmm. than the old way. But there are people who say, come on, Dr. Roseman, uh, you know, get with the 90s. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you can't live a leave-it-to-beaver world anymore. Well, in fact, I meet parents all over the country who, are, uh, who have created families that, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, resemble what we saw on television in the 1950s, families that are very relaxed, very close-knit, um, in which children are responsible contributing members of the family, in which television is not a mainstay of the family's life, right. et cetera, et cetera. So the, um, the idea that because times have changed, we must therefore change our parenting practices is not upheld by my experience, my contemporary experience, nor, Steve, is it upheld by history. I mean, if we go back to the year that my grandmother was born, 1894, in the first 30 years of her life, she saw more change than I saw in the first 30 years of mine. My parents saw more change in every conceivable way in the first 30 years of their lives than I saw in the first 30 years of mine. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, my grandmother raised her children the way she had been reared. My parents raised me the way they had been reared. So, times changing does not demand that we change our child-rearing practices at all, but we've become convinced that we need a new child-rearing in order to negotiate the uh, the 90s, which I right. think is uh, not true. Right. It's like people say, well, the problems are just completely different today, but what I hear you saying is these are really the same types of problems that they had in the past, and you just have to deal with them in that same strong parental way. Oh, I think the details have changed, but the issues are the same indeed. Right. Our guest is Dr. John Roseman. And Stephanie, you have a question for Dr. Roseman. Go ahead. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. I wanted to ask you, now that you can look back and say that your kids are growing and um, you're still giving advice to parents, would you say that your advice has changed now that your kids are grown and gone? Uh, No. I would say that my uh, advice has become, um, if anything, more, I've become more certain about it. Um, the, uh, there was a, to, to, you know, to tell you the truth, when my children were still in their formative years, um, there was a, a small voice of doubt in the back of my mind, but the outcome of their own upbringing has convinced me, and the, and the way that my son and his wife are starting out their own parenthood has convinced me that what my wife and I did, although it was completely, in many respects, out of step with the mob psychology of parenting today, was in fact the, the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Stephanie, are you having the kids getting older now? 
Um, no, my kids are still fairly young, but I just wondered if, you know, maybe as you, your kids do get older, if your parenting changes or, you know, how you look at it. Well, in my experience, Stephanie, uh, as I got older, my parenting relaxed. I realized that it wasn't all up to me, that uh, I was assigning, in fact, too much responsibility to myself for the outcome of the child-rearing practice of, of process. And one of the things that I realized along the way is something that previous generations realized intuitively, and that is that children have a mind of their own, that 50% of their upbringing is guided by themselves. And the, the key is not to try and influence it 100%, but to maximize your 50% of the process. Hmm. Does that help, Stephanie? Yeah. Yep, I just want to say thank you for being one of the conservative people that we can listen to, and we all appreciate your advice. Yeah, great. Stephanie, I appreciate that. Uh, Karen, you're on the line. Go ahead with your question. Hi. um, I read your book, The Seven Ways to Happy, Healthy Children or whatever, and you talked about um, when a child wakes up in the night. But I have a two-year-old who, since she was 11 days old, has slept through the night, and all of a sudden she's not. Hmm. What do you think I should do? Do your, from your book, would those things work, or...? Um, I would say, yeah, it's the six-point plan for raising happy, healthy children, Karen. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, in the book, I, I think it's that book anyway. If it's not covered in that book, it's covered in, in a subsequent book called A Family of Value. Um, in the first place, what's going on is that around two to two and a half, somewhere in there, a child's sleep neurology, if you will, changes. And children who previously slept the night may not sleep the night any longer for a time. Children who were not sleeping the night may suddenly begin to sleep the night. So um, what you're experiencing is not at all unusual, and the way to handle it is simply to, uh, when your child wakes up in the middle of the night, uh, I I would say follow your own intuition. Okay. (laughs) If you feel that you need to go in there, go in there, reassure your child you're still there, everything is all right and then leave. If he continues to cry, go in at a five-minute interval until he's back to sleep. That generally works. Well, what happens is she's in a toddler bed now yeah. and can get up, and I, she wakes me in the night, and there I see this blonde little face looking at me <laughs> at my bed. <laughs> she, she's not crying. <laughs> she comes in, and so that's the problem we're having. Yeah. How, how old is he exactly? She is... Um, she turned two the end of April, so what, two and five months or whatever. Okay, and is she fairly verbal? Very. Okay. Well, one of the things that you can tell her at this age, and, and I'm going to let you figure out the details of this, uh-huh. but I'll just give you one idea. This may not be the idea that you're most comfortable with, but you could put a gate up at your door. In other words, leave your door open, uh-huh. but put a gate up and tell her, that you've talked to her doctor, and her doctor says that there she can't come in your room. She can wake up, she can hmm. come to the gate, but she can't come in your room. Uh-huh. And uh, it'll be easier for you under those circumstances, I think, okay. to, uh, to get That's her back in her bed. You may want to put the gate up at her door. I'll let you, you know, you figure out the details. Yeah, I need her to be able to get to the bathroom if she needs to. Yeah. but um, That's sure. an interesting idea. Yeah, that is. Does that help, Karen? That does. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for calling in. Dr. John Rosemond is our guest. Back to the phone lines at WHO Radio. Linda, you have a question for Dr. John Rosemond. Go Hello. ahead, Linda. Hi. Hi, Linda. Hello. Um, I've been a child care provider for 18 years, so I deal with children and siblings or children, parents and children for um, 
you know, daily basis. And then I have one daughter that's uh, married and has quadruplets, natural quadruplets. Goodness. Two boys and two girls. And she's doing a wonderful job with them, and I'm really proud of her. She's been a hands-on mom day in and day out. Well, of course, Daddy works and is going to school part-time. So she's definitely with the children most of the time. Yeah. Um, they, I really don't have any, you know, like I said, they're doing really, really well. But um, the couple of them are, like, really shy when you get when you first around people or someone comes in with dark hair or something like that. About what age do they grow out of their shyness or what? Uh, Linda, the latest research is that shyness is an innate uh, temperamental characteristic mm-hmm. and that um, more girls than boys have uh, temperaments that are hmm. that we call shy mm-hmm. and that typically um, 80% of people who start their lives shy will eventually grow out of it mm-hmm. uh, what is counterproductive is a lot of pushing sure sure what yeah. is productive is just a lot of uh, one of the things that that you and her parents can do is be proactive about social situations. If you're um, going into a social situation and you want the children to meet someone, mm-hmm. practice how to meet someone, how to look at someone, mm-hmm. and just simple things like saying hello and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. The um, the more low-key the guidance, mm-hmm. and uh, the research seems to indicate that the more outgoing the parent, the more likely it is that the right. child will outgrow this in, they, in due time. Yeah, they're doing a lot better now at two years old than yeah. they did at a year old. Yeah. But it's more the boys than the girls. The girls will be shy for just a few minutes, and then, boy, they're down in little socialites. Yeah. But the boys are the ones now they are real clingy. And uh, even now, Alexander, even if you're playing with him, or yeah. and he's in the car seat and we're singing songs along the way or something, but if you go to, you just smile at him and, and or tickle him, he just is real shy and will turn his head and doesn't want the eye contact even. He's just really shy, even with, sometimes with his mother, that he'll be just real shy. This may not be shyness. In fact, it may just be a typical developmental stage that all children go through. They do go through a fairly clingy stage between 18 and 30 months. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can be interpreted as shyness. I know my grandson, Jack Henry, um, is uh, going through a similar kind of thing. I mean, whereas he used to run up to me mm-hmm. and throw his arms around me and almost jump into my arms. Now I will walk into a room and look at him, and he kind of looks down at the floor with this kind of half smile on his mm-hmm. face, like he doesn't really know what to do. Mm-hmm. And that's just a phase. It, um, so I, I would say, you know. It, you might want to just reevaluate this in a year, and sure. and uh, in a year you'll know whether this is shyness yeah. or not. Thanks, yeah. Linda. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, Doctor Roseman, my uh, my youngest daughter. Of course, she didn't go to daycare, and so you know, people said she was a little bit shy. She's totally fine now. I, mean, I think I think a lot of it is we're so used to these daycare kids being so aggressive yeah. and uh, almost intimidating. I mean, they're so outgoing now because from age six weeks they've been. Uh, in a room with uh, 40 other kids, uh, yeah. the the kid who who doesn't go to daycare ends up kind of looking a little bit different. But I don't have a problem with that. I mean, the, the kids are going to grow up just fine. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Steve. The, the research is that children who go to daycare have, quote, better social skills. And I'm not sure that they're so much better as just different. Yeah. You know? Our guest on Winsenberg on the Weekend is Dr. John Rosemond. He's the author of Parent Power and a number of other books. And Dr. Rosemond, you're not one to shy away from controversy, so I'm going to go ahead and toss a couple of these at you, okay? Fine. Because you've written about these. The one I think that got the most uh, response that I saw in terms of letters to the editor was the attention deficit disorder, where uh, you said that very often 
uh, it isn't just as easy as just giving a kid some medicine, that, that there are some other things going on there. Can you explain that? Well, I am unconvinced that we're having an epidemic of attention deficit disorder. I am convinced that we're having an epidemic of the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. I'm convinced that there is, Steve, a lot of misinformation and mythology being dispensed to parents whose children have the sort of difficulties that we associate with the syndrome. Let me clarify, first of all, I do believe that there is such a thing as attention deficit disorder. I do not, I am not convinced, and in fact I am a skeptic, that this disorder is for the most part a result of genetics. I have to believe, based on cross-cultural research and based on longitudinal information, in other words, information from previous generations, that the epidemic increase in this particular disorder, which is apparently epidemic, is due not to genes, not to chromosomes, not to biology, but is due primarily to a reversal to changes in our childering practices and to the introduction of television into the lives mm -hmm. of children. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, uh, you know, I keep saying this and... and uh, and it just raises the hackles of people who have a vested interest in thinking that this is a biochemical disorder. How about stretching it even farther to say possibly the, the state of the family in the sense of there, there are two parents out there working full-time very often, uh, the kid not getting the type of attention that uh, they used to get, you know, years ago? Is that possible? Oh, yeah. I think that uh, in previous generations, Steve, children were reared such that they learned at a very early age to pay attention to adults they learned at a very early age to accept assignment from adults, and they are not learning those things in families anymore. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about that in one of my talks called the Frantic Family Syndrome. But you sure get a lot of uh, violent reaction to that. I'm amazed how many kids I have, how many college students I have who come up and say, I have attention deficit disorder. Yeah. They, they've, they've diagnosed themselves that as if that's something that's going to last the rest of their life. Right. And I'm not sure how accurate that diagnosis is. Well, even if the diagnosis is accurate, another part of the myth is that it is uh, not remediable, that it, 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 right. it is going to last the rest of your life. I mean... For gosh sake, Steve, and all of our listeners, I hope, should appreciate this. The human brain is the most adaptable organ in the known universe. The human brain can recover from a massive stroke. To presume that the human brain cannot recover from a minor, if it is biochemical, a minor biochemical uh, or programming disorder, such as attention deficit disorder, is just absolutely yeah. absurd. And in my private practice, I saw plenty and plenty of children with these kinds yeah. of problems who did recover within a reasonable period of time. Now, you mentioned television. That's another area of controversy. You yeah. feel pretty strongly about this. Tell well, us about it. I feel it. strongly about it because uh, television, I think, has a lot of insidious effects that have nothing to do with the programming that children are watching. I think that uh, television... Uh, if it's introduced during the preschool years, can have the effect of uh, delaying the maturation of a child's attention span. Mm -hmm. um, people don't realize that a child's attention span does not mature until age five or six anyway. And before that time, a short attention span is pretty much the norm. The key to the maturation 
of that attention span is not to put any impediments in its path. And I think television is one of those impediments. Oh, but now the people are going to say, look at Sesame Street. Look yep. at all the wonderful ABCs that kids learn at age two and three now because right. of television. Right. And I, and I say to them, there is no evidence whatsoever that those programs are uplifting the educational level of this generation of children. In the first place, since television became a staple in the lives of children, and even since Sesame Street was introduced in the uh, late 60s, scholastic achievement test scores have been going downhill, epidemic mm -hmm. reading problems have been going uphill. Um, the second thing that I would say is this, that school and Sesame Street are simply not at all comparable. Uh, the classroom is not a place where teachers entertain you, and uh, I'm afraid that children these days and the indication I get from talking with teachers, in fact, is that children today in large numbers come to school thinking that education is going to be fun and games, right. like and they have entertainment, experienced to right. be That's on right. Sesame mm -hmm. Street. And I say to parents, Sesame Street is anti-educational, because in the final analysis, that is not how one becomes educated. Well, you cover this in your books, in your columns, and you've done just a great job uh, being very even-minded, fair, in uh, approaching all these subjects. Gosh, I hope so. And Dr. John Roseman, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I know you've got a crazy schedule, but we appreciate you taking the time today. Steve, thank you for inviting me on your show, and let me just say that I'm looking forward to being in Des Moines. It's one of my favorite places, always has been. Thanks.